You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray again together. Father, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures. And we declare that indeed it is your word to us. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. And in all that we do, we long to walk and step with what you have revealed to us in this sacred text. Thank you, Father, for your word. And now in this time of consecration, in this sermon, I ask that you would bless us. Feed our souls and lead us forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, uh, we're going to hit pause one more time on uh, our series here in 1 Timothy. And kind of like I did a month ago, I want to step out of this series and give another sermon on the topic of men and women. We started preaching through 1 Timothy the first Sunday of January. One of the reasons that we as pastors decided it good to be in the book of 1 Timothy is because this book teaches about men and women and pastors and deacons and doctrine and mission and money and creation and all kinds of other things that are good for us to talk about. This letter was written, Paul says, in chapter 3, verse 15, so that we would know how to behave in the household of God. Paul has written this letter so that we know how to order our lives together as a community born by the gospel. And so a month ago, before we got into the particular teachings about men and women in 1 Timothy, I gave a sermon that introduced a theology of men and women. That's because before we consider the topic of our callings and practice, we need a foundational understanding of who are men and women. That was a month ago. And today, now that we have come through chapter 2 and the mention of women in chapter 3, verse 11, we're going to book in that previous sermon a month ago with something like a part two. All right. Part of this is because our schedule got kind of mixed up, uh, the preaching schedule. And so we had to make some changes. And these, this is part of the changes that we're making. So part one a month ago was a theology of men and women. And now part two today is a vision for our life together on mission. And so what I'd like to do, uh, which, which again, this is, this is unusual compared to most of our sermons. If this is your first time with us, we normally just expound a passage of scripture. This is kind of a, a different way of doing it today. But what I want to do, instead of expounding one passage of scripture, I want to lay out 10 affirmations, okay? These are 10 church culture shaping convictions about men and women, and they form a vision for our life together on mission. So the plan is really simple. I'm just going to state the conviction. I'm going to give some comments, and then I'm just going to move on to the next one. We have 10. Okay. That sound all right? You guys good with that? Okay. I got to hustle, but we got, we can get through it here. Okay. So here we go. These are our 10 culture-shaping convictions for our church about men and women and our life together on mission. And number one is that our goal is to dance together, not keep counting steps. Number one, our goal is to dance together, not keep counting steps. Now look, I, I will admit, I do not know much about dancing, all right? 
but I do remember the electric slide. All right, anybody put their hands up. You know the electric slide. We've been doing the electric slide in our house this past week. I got a video of Melissa doing it. She came back. She can do it. Um, I can't remember, but I know the song. And uh, this goes back to middle school for me. And in middle school, we'd have a few dances throughout the year. And the electric slide was that one dance back then that everybody did together. Okay, it was a big deal because all of the sixth graders through to all of the eighth graders, all of us, all sixth, seventh, eighth graders, we all together would get on the dance floor and we would do this huge choreographed dance together. Okay, you guys remember how it goes? You gotta know it. It's electric. Boogie, woogie, woogie. If you can, we could do it, right? If we remember, we, we, this is, so what we do is we all get out there and we all would do this, you know, this boogie, woogie, woogie together. And the reason that everybody did the dance together is because our middle school PE teacher would teach the dance in his class throughout the week. It was, I guess, part of like this aerobics thing that he did, but, but he would teach us the dance in PE class. And I remember back then that learning the dance in PE and doing the dance together on a Friday night were very different. Because in PE class, it was very mechanical, right? There was a lot of step counting. Mr. Walsh, who was our PE teacher, he would walk us through the whole thing and he'd say, okay, you got to step here and then you got to, you know, you got to step here and you got to, you got to do it like this. He, he taught us how to time the whole thing, how to sync it up to the music. And so we, we learned it together. During PE class, we were very mindful of all of those pieces and all of those details, but that's what allowed us at school dances just to dance. The goal was to dance, not to keep counting steps. And it works the same way with how we think about the meaning and callings of men and women. There is a time for us to slow down and walk through the steps. It's important for us to learn how to dance. But the goal is to dance. The goal is to eventually move past the hyper self-consciousness and to simply fulfill the mission that God has given us as men and women. And in terms of where we are as a church, the timing is right for us to be counting steps. We are still, by all standards, a new church. We're still a new church. We've just started our fifth year, and we are at that moment in the life of our church, in God's kindness, where it's good for us to teach more about order and details, which is why 1 Timothy is right for us right now. So all this stuff that we've been talking about, this topic and all the conversations that we're having, it is good for us, right? I want you to know, this makes sense. This is right for us to have these conversations. We need to spend some time counting steps. We need to look down at our feet, right? We, we need to spend some time learning about the dance, but the goal is to dance. That's the aim, all right? That's where we're trying to go. The goal is to dance. The goal is mission, all right? Number two, there is room for us to grow in faithfulness. And one of the things that we've realized during this step counting process is that we as a church have many members 
and we have different instincts. And we as pastors figured as much because we as pastors have different instincts and we are the better for it as a team. We are better as a team that we're not all the exact same. And as a church of many members, we all have different stories and experiences. We have different influences and commitments, which means there are lots of moving pieces here. There's lots of moving pieces here. And at large, among these moving pieces, there are basically two different views, okay? This is, over, this is oversimplifying, but there are basically two different views. On one view, there are some of us in this church, including the pastors, who have a complementarian understanding of men and women. We believe that the Bible's vision for men and women is disjunction and interplay, all right? There's distinction and overlap. We are bound together and yet we are also distinct, and that is good, all right? That's one view. Then the other view, there are those who think that the pastor's complementarian understanding of men and women undervalues and represses women. This view thinks there should be less distinction and more overlap between what men and women do. And both of these views I just want to be clear here. Both of these views, I believe, are in between the two extremes of male chauvinism on the far right and feminism to the far left, okay? Both of our views reject the sinful extremes. And yet still, as we reject the sinful extremes to the far right and the far left, there still are two, two views here that are closer to the middle. There's still two different instincts, views that are going on. And I think that both of these views have room for growth and the growth is a growth in faithfulness, all right? It's important here, again, to be super clear that what matters most in this topic is faithfulness to God. I'm just... I'm assuming we all believe that, okay? What matters most is faithfulness to God. As Christians, we care primarily about what God thinks, which means we want to conform everything that we do to the vision of reality that God has given us. And that is never just a a box check and we're done, right? We are always needing to strive and work toward deeper faithfulness. We are always wanting to be shaped more and more by God. And that means that for the pastors who embrace our our complementarian view, we have room to grow in making our practice more congruent to our theology. It is one thing to embrace a theology of the sexes. It is another thing to really live that out. And there is room for us to grow here. We're working on this. We've been talking about this for months. We, 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 believe, we, we, we believe that when there's a disconnect between your theology and your practice, it means you're missing out. It means that there is goodness and blessings for our church that we may not be laying hold of, and we want to lay hold of those things, all right? There is room for us to grow. We are, we are working on this. We are talking about this. We are seeking to grow as pastors. And then on the other view, there's also room for growth. 
there are all kinds of subtle ways that the value systems of our secular culture have influenced our thinking. There are forces and pressures from our world that shape the way we see reality, including the way we understand all kinds of things that we just take for granted, such as the body and personhood and marriage and children and work and money and men and women. Our default way of thinking when it comes to these topics is the world's way of thinking. It it just is, okay? Our default way of thinking is the world's way of thinking, and that's important to recognize, and it takes humility, okay? There are ways that we are shaped more by secularism than by the Bible. We drink it in all the time. It is the world we live in. It is the ocean we swim in. We are more shaped by secularism a lot of times than we are the Bible. And part of discipleship, which is the mission of our church, part of discipleship is building a Christian vision for reality. And that means all parts of reality. And there's room for us to grow here. Every side of this thing, every side of this thing has room to grow. And that's what we're trying to do. That's why we're having these conversations. We want to grow together in faithfulness. Amen? Amen? All right, number three. We believe the Bible is true and good. Now, in the sermon a month ago, we talked about this thing we called biblical minimalism is that sometimes we can treat the Bible like it's a manual or rule book. And therefore, when we do that, we we tend to only do the bare minimum of what the Bible says. This is the way of thinking that starts with, well, the Bible doesn't say blank. And what tends to happen is when we think that way is, is we assume that if the Bible doesn't explicitly address something, then it gives us the creative license to figure it out on our own. Which again, that tends to be shaped more by non-Christian forces, non-Christian ways of thinking. And eventually, if you are never slowed down on that road, you will end up becoming a Unitarian Universalist. That's kind of a joke, but that's how that happens, right? That's how that happens. The more and more you become removed from the way of thinking in Scripture, the more you start inventing stuff, coming up with stuff, and there are whole denominations today that have done that. It happens, okay? We don't want to do that, okay? Instead, we want to see everything through the lens of the Word of God. We want to see everything through the lens of the Bible. We want all of our thinking about everything to be shaped by the Bible, and we want to obey it with a mature obedience. Now, Pastor Joe talked a little bit, uh, a little bit about this last week. There is one way to obey Scripture that says, well, the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. All right, this is what we can call it. This is a simple because I said so obedience. And because it's obedience, it's good, but it's what we could call an immature good. It's the kind of obedience I expect from Noah, our three-year-old. All right, so Noah, now that he's three, we can talk together, but we can't exactly reason together, okay? 
So there are a lot of things that I tell him, a lot of instructions I give Noah that I expect him just to do without knowing why. Right? Parents, you get what I'm saying? It's because daddy said so. And I expect him to obey, which is very different from how I expect our 11-year-old Elizabeth to obey. Because Elizabeth and I, we can talk and reason together. And we've been doing this daddy-daughter thing now for over a decade. And so when I give her instructions, when she asks something and I answer, when we, I'm fathering her, giving her instructions, I want her to obey, not just because I said so, but because she knows I'm seeking her good. See, I want her to know it's because daddy loves her. I want what's best for her. This is mature obedience. It's so relevant when it comes to discipleship. We want to walk in obedience to God's word, not just because God says so, but because we believe that God's word is true and good. We believe that God in Christ intends our blessing. God is love. He wants his people to have joy. He wants his people to flourish in faith. Immature obedience is better than disobedience. But mature obedience is better than immature obedience. And that's what we want, okay? We believe the Bible is true and good. Number four, the awareness of our historical moment is necessary for prudent application of the Bible's teaching. And one of the things you probably heard us say a lot about is how unique this moment is historically. You've heard us talk about these, you know, these different movements in the Western world from the pre-industrial to the industrial and to the post-industrial. Some of you are like, enough of that. We heard enough about all that. I get, I totally get that. The first thing to mention about why we, we talk about these changes is simply because we're just trying to just note the fact that we are asking questions today that have never been asked before, all right? Um, technology has transformed our world. And a lot of that is good. I appreciate technology. We all should be thankful. And yet at the same time, there are also unintended side effects that we're still trying to recognize. And this is all new for everybody. In a very real way, we are trying right now, the church, and us as the church specifically, we're trying to bring Christian faithfulness into a new frontier. The church has never been here before. So we're just, we're just trying to figure this out. It means at the very least that patience is important. Okay. We're just, we don't know exactly how this should go. Hear that. We're trying to figure this out. We are bringing Christian faithfulness into a new frontier. So we, we want to have conversations. We, we have to have conversations. We want to work toward this thing together, Okay. And to be clear, again, on this point, we are not trying to get back to 1950. We do not believe that past generations in America represent some kind of gold standard for how the church should be. Absolutely not. Every generation of the church in every culture has faced all kinds of challenges, right? Every church in every culture and every time has had their issues. And we see that already happening in the New Testament. Paul is addressing a lot of those things. And so the task ahead for us is to learn from the past, 
but then to give fresh application of the Bible to our current times, which means we need to understand our current times and we can't understand our current times without some comparison to past times. That's why we talk about the pre-industrial era and stuff like that, okay? That's why we've talked about this, this idea of the productive household, okay? It is a significant historical change that before the 20th century, a 30-something-year-old woman was arguably the most productive person in society. And then in only a few decades, by the 1950s and 60s, she went from being society's leading producer to society's leading consumer. This is an economic change, okay? It's just, it's just there. Go look at it. It's, it, it this, is, this is an economic shift that happened in our culture, and it's a change that has to do with values, okay? Something happened in the 20th century that led us to believe that valuable work is work that earns a wage. And the higher the wage, the higher the value of the work. We just assume that today, no questions asked. Like what I just said, we just absolutely buy that. We just assume that says, we, we assume today that the higher the wage, the higher the value for the work. That's just an axiom for our culture, okay? Work, back in the 20th century, became associated with personal value, not social good, not positive influence, not a flourishing household. Work became about monetary value. And the more you get paid, the more valuable you are. And no wonder then why women felt slighted. Our economy created a value system that did not value the work of millions of women. That just happened, okay? That's the 20th century. And we just want to say no to that. We just, we want to recognize the meaningfulness of the home and we want to be clear that the value of our work is not measured by a number beside a dollar sign. You got that? That's what we're trying to say. And now we got to be careful here. We have to be careful here. Okay. Don't jump to conclusions. Okay. Just because we want to push back against our society's values and highlight the meaningfulness of the home, it does not mean that we think women should be confined to only working at home. It does not mean that we think women should not have careers. I know there's been a lot of questions here. There's been a lot of conversations, a lot of wondering about this. And I'd love to just, let's just keep having those conversations. What we're trying to do, we're trying to do prudent application of the Bible's teaching. The Bible says in Titus 2, 3 to 5, this is Titus 2, 3 to 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, uh, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, that's the Bible, all right? That's just the Bible. You can go read it, Titus chapter, chapter two, three to five, okay? 
But now we got to ask, what does this mean? What, what does working at home mean? Well, again, it doesn't mean that women should be confined to the home. That's not what Paul is saying. But what it does get at is that women have an irreplaceable impact in the home. That's what we're trying to say. And stating, this is important too, stating the meaningfulness of one thing does not undermine the meaningfulness of another. This is not a pie. This is not a zero-sum game, okay? We are trying to restore to, to this idea of the meaningfulness of the home. We, we want to uphold that. We want to, to, to say, yes, we want to reject the way our society thinks about value and money and work. We want to say that work in the home is valuable and that women have a special, unique, glorious role and impact in their homes. And we want, just to, we want to have a Proverbs 31 woman comprehensiveness. In Proverbs 31, we see that this woman has this amazing influence in her home and beyond her home. That's what we want, a Proverbs 31 woman comprehensiveness. We want to be aware of our historical moment, and we want to faithfully, prudentially apply the Bible. Number five. Number five is that we believe that men have a particular calling to provide, lead, and protect. So here I want to start talking about the distinct callings to men and women. And I'm giving summary statements without a lot of nuance. Okay, for example, that men have a particular calling to provide, lead, and protect doesn't mean that only men do these things. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. But I'm saying that at large, in summary, providing, leading, and protecting is a weight put particularly on men, all right? We see this in nature. We see this in how God has wired the world. We also see this in scripture going back to Genesis 1 and 2. In the week of creation in Genesis 1:26, we see that God created mankind on the sixth day. Mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation. The world had been laid out. Day one was light and darkness. God named day and night. Day two was the expanse and the dry land. God named heaven and earth. Day three, there then came all the, the trees and the plants and the seeds and the fruit. Day four was when God made the lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day five, was when God made all the sea creatures. Day six was the day when God made all the land animals and the creeping things. And then lastly, he finally made Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 gives us this panorama of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we see more of like a zoom lens into the creation of man and woman. Adam was created on the sixth day as the pinnacle of creation and Genesis 2 gives us the details. Okay, in Genesis 2, 5, we see that before God created vegetation, this is before, this is day three, before the, the plants and the fruit and the trees came, God says in Genesis 2, 5, there's no man to work the ground. There's no man to work it. And so God says that why he makes Adam on the sixth day is to serve this part of creation he made on, on day three. Okay, which means that God actually made man to join him in his creative work. All of creation is choreographed. All of them, all the days fit together. Okay, it's really beautiful how God, nothing is arbitrary. It all fits together. God formed Adam from the ground and Adam is oriented to the ground. 
God puts Adam in the garden, tells him to work it and keep it. He tells him to cultivate it and tend it. There's this orientation toward it and a protection of it. Okay, that's Genesis 2, 15. Now the same Hebrew words for work and keep in Genesis 2 are translated as serve and guard in other places throughout the, New, uh, throughout the Old Testament. And they refer to the duties of priests. Okay, Pastor Joe said last week that these duties of, of priests in the Old Testament correlate to pastors in the New Testament. I think that's right. And it's not just that, that only men should be pastors, which is what the Apostle Paul teaches, is also that all men should be pastor-like, priest-like. Work and keep, serve and guard, love and protect. This is a particular calling on men, and it gets worked out when men gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. That's, that's my favorite definition of masculinity, gladly assuming sacrificial responsibility. Men, in summary, are to provide, lead, and protect for the good of others. Men are, are designed to sustain and advance, to carry and expand, and to guard against all threats. Men are, are meant to be strong. Men are meant to, to stand firm. Men are meant to act like men, which is an actual word in the Greek. It's the word andrizomai. And Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That is a particular calling on men. All right, number six. We believe that women have a particular calling to vivify, fill, and complete. All right? In Genesis 2, after God has created Adam to join his creative work, and after he charged Adam to work and keep the garden, God says, hey, he can't do this alone. Man can't do this alone. God had invited Adam to join in his creative work. He had handed off to Adam the task of naming creation, and God knew Adam needed help. God, God knew Adam needed a creative helper, and so from the man, God creates woman. From Adam, God creates Eve, and together they become one flesh. And the, the, the order of how this goes is important. We know that because Paul refers back to this order, both in 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15, which we've seen, and also in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about the very practical issue of authority symbols, which back in that day was head coverings, okay? And Paul grounds what he says in 1 Corinthians 11 with Genesis 2. He says, for a man, this is, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, okay? For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that's 1 Corinthians 11, like 7 to around 12, okay? Now, Paul refers back to Genesis 2 here, but what does he mean when he says that woman is the glory of man? What does that mean? Well, again, I think it comes from Genesis 2. It's that God made man to join God in his creative work, and God made woman to complete that work. God made man to work with God, and then God made woman to join man in God's work. Man was made to work with God. Woman was made to work with man 
in God's work. Which means, this is important how creation is laid out. It all has meaning. If the pinnacle of creation is the sixth day in the creation of mankind, then the capstone of that pinnacle is actually the creation of woman. That's what it means that woman is the glory of man. It means that woman is the radiance of man. Woman is the radiance of mankind, which is the pinnacle of all of God's creation. Woman has this amazing, amazing place as the highest point. She completes the work. She brings life. That's what the word vivify means, okay? It's an old word. She enlivens. She brings life. Woman joins into God's creative work by literally filling the world with mankind among all kinds of other amazing ways. She has, woman has a filling, completing perfecting work. And, and one way to say it is that if man is headship, woman is hardship. If a man forms, the woman feels. And the choreography is beautiful and man orients to woman in this way. Woman is the glory of man. And so man is bound to seek her flourishing. This interdependency is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. And it's also what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul shows us the parallel between the relationship of a husband and a wife to that of Jesus and the church. And what is Jesus doing? Well, first, he has loved the church and given himself for her, his bride. And also, Jesus is working toward her flourishing. Jesus right now is working toward the beautification of his bride. And the husband, likewise, is to nourish and cherish his wife as he does his own body. That's what Paul says. Now, where does Paul go to ground this? Where's Paul getting that from? Genesis 2. Again, he goes back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2.24, Paul refers to the, the remarkable, amazing one flesh union between a man and a woman. Woman, women are life givers. They are heart fillers. They are work completers. And the work of women is meant to be radiant. All right? Overall, we believe that women have this particular calling to vivify, fill, and complete. Number seven, we want our sons to be like trees and our daughters to be like corner pillars, all right? This is an application of five and six to the topic of parenting. If men and women have particular callings, it means that we want to raise our sons and daughters in particular ways. It means that we don't, we don't merely want our children to be adults. It means we want our sons to be men of God. It means we want our daughters to be women of God. And I love the way that Psalm 144.12 puts this. I've been, I've been memorizing this psalm for the last couple of weeks. And in verse 12, David, he breaks into this blessing. He is speaking this word of blessing uh, on the people of Israel. And he says, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown and our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. And you think, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, there's a symbolism here. Sons are like trees. Daughters are like pillars, and nobody gets shortchanged. Trees in the Bible have this important symbolism, especially in the Old Testament. They represent righteousness. The blessed man who delights in God's word is a tree planted by streams of water in Psalm 1. 
The faithful man is like a, an olive tree planted by the house of God, Psalm 52. The righteous men flourish like a palm tree, Psalm 92. The redeemed are called the oaks of righteousness in Isaiah 61. We want our sons to be like that. We want our sons to be rooted like trees, fruitful like trees, and extended out like trees for the good of others. That's what we want for our sons. And as for the corner pillars on a palace, that is the most accented part of the highest price structure in the land. The palace represents the glory of the people. And the corner pillars are that part of the palace that people are supposed to walk by, look at, and say, wow, what a building. Corner pillars are the glory piece. It's the adorning piece of the structure that communicates the blessing of God. Moms and dads, I want you to hear me here. Our daughters are a witness to our community's wholeness. Our daughters, our daughters, they display what is wonderful about our homes and about our church. God's blessing on a community, you can see this all throughout the Bible, God's blessing on a community of people includes, at the top of the list, a blessing on their children. Our sons and our daughters are precious to us, and we want to orient to them like so, okay? Number eight, men and women should both pursue obedience and fight sin. Now, we know that men and women are both sinners and that Christian men and women must both put their sins to death. Paul commands that both men and women let not sin reign in your mortal bodies, Romans 6, 12. Flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Put off the old self, Colossians 3, 9. That goes for everybody, for men and women, right? We know that in the New Testament. And yet, there are some sins that are more particular to men and others that are more particular to women, this works the same way as there are particular exhortations addressed to men and also addressed to women. For example, in Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts men differently than how he exhorts women. And just like there are different exhortations to men and women, there are different besetting sins for men and women. Some besetting sins for men include sins like anger, pride, and patience, lust. Besetting sins for women include things like immodesty, gossip, busybodiness, and jealousy. And yet, while the New Testament addresses both, in the modern church, it is more common for only the sins of men to be addressed and not the sins of women. Now, there are different ways that we should address the sins of men and women. Men orient differently toward their fathers, sons, and brothers. They treat, they, they orient differently to fathers, sons, and brothers than they do mothers, daughters, and sisters. And Paul gets at this in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. To the former, men can be more direct and straight down the middle. To the latter, 
men should be more tender and careful. This is what Paul calls, uh, what Peter calls, an understanding way in 1 Peter 3, 7. And also in Titus 3, uh, Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, Paul says that older women are to train and teach younger women, which means that women have a vital role in the discipleship of other women. There are ways that women can teach and counsel other women that a pastor can't, according to Titus 2. And yet, and yet, it does not mean that pastors should ignore exhortations to women or the besetting sins particular to women. And so faithfulness to this office as a pastor, faithfulness to this office means that we have to address those the same way the Bible does. And I say that now because 1 Timothy chapter 5 is coming and Paul talks a lot about in 1 Timothy 5 about sins particular to women. That's in 1 Timothy 5. I just want to set that up, okay? Men and women in Jesus as a community born by the gospel are one body together. We are one body of many members and all members, men and women, are to pursue obedience and fight sin for the good of the body as the whole. We are not in competition here. We are a body together. We are bound together. We are one body. And if one member suffers, then all suffer together. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. We are one body of many members. And we are all, as we pursue obedience, as we fight our sin, we are pursuing the good of the whole body, even as men and women. Number nine, men and women as one body is necessary for our mission to make disciples. In the same way that men and women are necessary for the cultural mandate to fill the earth and have dominion, men and women are necessary for the great commission. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. It is a mission that we must do together. And again, we can just look to Paul here in the New Testament. Paul mentions several women in his letters who were co-workers with him in the gospel. There's Phoebe and Priscilla and Junia, and Mary, and Tryphena, and Tryphosa, and Persis, and the mother of Rufus, and the sister of Nereus. And there's also uh, Euodia, and Synthica, and, and Lois, and Eunice, and Claudia, and Aphia. Paul, throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, he mentions these women because he considers these women saints who ministered the gospel alongside him. These women labored alongside Paul in gospel ministry, and Paul recognizes them. He mentions them. The same Paul who taught a male-only eldership understood that women are vital, indispensable partners for gospel advance. It's just true. Men and women are both necessary for our mission to make disciples, and they are no less distinctly men and women. There's an important passage on this in Galatians 3, verse 25. Sometimes this verse is used to say that Paul completely eradicates all the distinctions among the sexes. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And some will say, because of this verse, that, see, there is no longer such a thing as male and female. All those differences are gone. But that's exactly what Paul is not saying here. Rather, 
Rather than than dismissing those distinctions, Paul is actually, he's recognizing those distinctions and he's saying that those distinctions do not keep us from Jesus. Wherever you are, in the, the societal outlook, where, wherever you live, wherever you're from, wherever you are, none of those things keep you from Jesus. That, that's what Paul is saying. By faith in Jesus, everyone, despite your situation, despite where you're coming from, everyone by faith in Jesus becomes one in Christ. Everyone, with all of our differences, including the differences of men and women, we are one body together and our mission can only be fulfilled as that one body together, okay? Number 10. Number 10, the structuring and ordering of God's household, the church, is based on the wise and prudent application of God's design and creation as expressed and clarified by the word of God and is designed to both protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. And you've probably heard that before, okay? I just ripped that from Pastor Joe last week, okay? That was one of his sentences that he said. It's actually a statement that we as pastors have all collaborated on. We've all worked on this statement. It is a summary of our theological conviction. We recognize, I just want to say, we recognize, we get that for some of you, this last month in our sermon series has been difficult and confusing. And you're wondering exactly what the pastors think about these things, and you're wondering how... How are these things going to be fleshed out? And you're worried that what we believe and have taught from 1 Timothy is going to stifle women. And if that's you, I I want you to know we're not trying to run you off, okay? We don't want you to leave. We're not trying to run you off. We've already received a few emails from people who are already saying farewell. They're already gone. And I understand that. I totally get that. I totally get where they're coming from. And, and I, I, I get that. I just want to say, let's have conversations, okay? We're trying to have a conversation here. We, we want to talk with you. So, so bef- before you would leave, would you lean in and let's, let's meet, let's talk, let's converse together? Uh, we, we, we know this is a complicated issue in our modern world, and, and we want to engage it. No, we want to engage this in faith and in wisdom. And so we have to do that together. We have to talk together. We're going to continue as pastors to preach the Bible because we believe the Bible is true and good. At the same time, we want our ministry as pastors to be marked by a combination of clear preaching of the Bible and also extensive conversations face-to-face. I'm a disciple with you. We're trying to follow Jesus together. We're trying to be faithful together. So let's keep talking. The structuring and ordering of God's household, the church, is based on a wise and prudent application of God's design and creation as expressed and clarified by the word of God and is designed to both protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. And one thing I appreciate about that summary statement is that it's pointed toward our goal. Our goal, our hope, what we're trying to do here is to protect and advance the gospel of Jesus to the glory of God. We don't want to keep looking down at our feet, right? We, the, the aim is not to keep counting our steps. Instead, we, we want to dance, all right? 
we want a beautifully choreographed, Jesus-exalting dance. Boogie, woogie, woogie. All right, that's what we want. And that's what brings us to the table. At this table, we remember the death of Jesus for us and we celebrate his grace at work in our lives. Jesus has loved us. Jesus has freed us from our sins. He has given his life for us. And in this moment, we together give him thanks. And so if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to this table to give thanks with us. We're gonna serve the bread first. Just hold the bread and we will eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.